Uh, we've been steadily working our way through the covenants of the Old Testament. Um, I've got a slide up here. So we've been working through the Adamic covenant. We've been working through the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic. And now we have come to the new covenant. We have finally arrived after working our way through all the covenants of the Old Testament. Uh, but before we get into it, I want to talk firstly about the ministry of the prophets. Uh, so after King David, you can kind of see the time after King David as a kind of a time of a great prophetic, um, uh, I guess, uh, interactions. Now, there was obviously prophets before David, but we read a lot of prophets after David. And these are the prophets that ministered to the sons of David and to Israel, uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel and to the southern kingdom of Judah. And God sends his prophets to warn Israel about their covenant faithfulness. Uh, normally, when we think about prophets, we think about those guys that predict things, right? We, that, that look into the future, that peer into the future and tell us the events of the future. But one of the ways uh, that prophets, I, I guess the better job description to give to the prophets is less about prediction and more about the covenant. In fact, it's really interesting with theologians across all denominational aspects, there's one thing that they all agree on about the prophets. The prophets were covenant enforcers. Covenant enforcers. It's a good way to think about them. Their job was to reform Israel, to reawaken Israel to the covenant that they had made with the Lord at Sinai. And the reason why God raised up these prophets is because Israel had become apostate. Now that word apostate, apostasy, it means to renounce or to desert God. This is someone who was a covenant member, a person obligated to keep God's law and his covenant, and they decided to abandon God and to discard his covenant, to dis discard his commandments and to follow after other gods. And when Israel did this, God would raise up covenant enforcers, prophets, who would indict Israel for their faithlessness and call them back to covenant loyalty to God. And the prophets warned the people, if you don't turn back from the worship of the false gods and return to the Lord, you remember all the curses we read about in Deuteronomy, they're all going to fall upon you. If you do not turn from your ways. And what was the last curse? To be exiled, dispersed, cast among all the nations. But the prophets didn't just denounce Israel, but they gave hope to Israel. The prophets spoke quite extensively about a future covenant, a future agreement, a future moment when God would restore Israel and do a work in them that they were unable to do in themselves. Uh, Jeremiah calls it the New Covenant, as we heard uh, Daniel read before. And before we get to the New Testament, we're going to get to the New Testament, but I feel like if we jump to the New Testament too quickly, then we're going to miss a lot of what the Old, Old Testament has to say to us about the New Covenant. Because the prophets expect a New Covenant. They speak extensively about a New Covenant. Uh, scripture cannot be broken. Jesus himself said, Matthew 5:17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law... All the prophets, right? All the prophets. We've got to remember that section there. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus will fulfill all of the law, but also the prophets. He doesn't abolish them. He fulfills them. And so we ought to get a good understanding of what the prophets expected. And so we're going to be mainly focusing on the big three guys. You guys will know them as Ezekiel, Isaiah, and obviously Jeremiah, who we read just before. And we're going to read, we're going to spend most time in the book of Jeremiah uh, because of the way that it talks about the new covenant. So my three points for my sermon are this. I've got a slide for it. Number one, the need for a new covenant. Number two, the blessings of the new covenant. And number three, the membership of the new covenant. 
Now, if you guys have read the book of Jeremiah, you'll know that the book of Jeremiah is kind of broken into different sections and different structures. In the first 25 chapters of Jeremiah, the prophet absolutely goes after the nation of Israel. He has some harsh denouncements to make about them. Have a listen to Jeremiah 11, 10 to 13. He says, They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars that you have set up to shame. Altars to make offerings to Baal. Jeremiah is prophesying right now to covenant breakers. They've broken the covenant. You walk through the city of Jerusalem and you see altars. You walk through the towns and you see high places and shrines. And these are people who are unfaithful to God, who have abandoned him. And Jeremiah says, your gods are as many as your cities. And he's pleading with them, come back to God. Don't go down this path. Don't abandon the living God for these false gods. But it gets to a point where it's, there's no help anymore. God will not listen. And the ones that are leading the charge on this rebellion are what Jeremiah calls the shepherds of Israel. There's a big issue with the shepherds of Israel at the time. Who are the shepherds of Israel? You can think of them as the regime or the establishment of Israel at the time. And they were made up of the prophet and the priest and the king or prophets, priests and king. And they were supposed to lead the people into covenant faithfulness. And instead, this is what Jeremiah says about them. Jeremiah 2.8. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the Lord did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Now, why are they doing all these things? It says here, they do not know me. They don't know God. This is evidenced by the fact that they have the very law of God. They have his words, and yet they're still practicing evil. They're still doing horrendous things. Jeremiah says quite clearly, they do not know God. He says to King Shalom, who was a king for one month, but he says to this king, who was supposed to be the son of David, the son of righteous King uh, Josiah, and here what he says, here's what he says about the king at the time, Jeremiah 22, 15 and 17. He says, do you think you were king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. Here God says, King, King Shalom, this is what it means to know me. Do what King Josiah did. Live righteously. Act justly. Keep my laws. Instead, here's one of Jeremiah's favorite phrases, dishonest gain. He was greedy for dishonest gain, whether he got it through violence and oppression or extortion or theft. You see this repeated all throughout the book of Jeremiah. And what is the cause of this? Why is everyone acting this way? Why is Israel behaving like this? Well, it says they have wicked and stubborn hearts. Jeremiah is going after the hearts of Israel. Nine times Jeremiah indicts Israel as having a stubborn and rebellious heart. 
Jeremiah 5, 23 to 24. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God. Jeremiah 8, 7. Even the stork in the heavens knows her time. And the turtle dove, swallow and crane, keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. You can see how Jeremiah is a covenant enforcer, can't you? He's saying to them, you are not keeping covenant. You are not the people God intended. You, in fact, sometimes worse than the nations. How are you going to be a light to the nations if you're worse than them? Their hard and stubborn heart means they don't know God and they don't know his ways. And therefore, they practice a manner of vile things. And Jeremiah, he's not just going after the leaders. It doesn't matter what echelon of society you come from. Both the small and the great have gone astray. Jeremiah 5.4 Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. See, the prophet Jeremiah sees the poor and they're behaving poorly. They're doing terrible things. And he says, you know what? I'll go to the priests. I'll go to the great. I'll go to the prophets. I'll go to those who have my law. They'll know. And he goes and sees them. And what does he see? They all like have broken the yoke. They have burst the bonds from peasant to noble, from poor to great. They've broken the yoke. And what does that mean? They've broken the covenant relationship of their God. This theme runs throughout the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 16, 13 for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy. And it's his favorite phrase, dishonest or unjust, unjust gain. And from the prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Jeremiah 8.10, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Everyone. Huge indictment on Israel. Your leaders are wicked. Your poor are wicked. You are all covenant breakers. You don't know me. Your hearts are stubborn. You're a stiff-necked people. If you don't return to God, you will perish. Why am I telling you all these things? Like, man, this is a real vibe kill right now. But the reason I'm telling you these things is because it highlights why we need a new covenant. This is the need for the new covenant. We need one. Why? Because we're powerless to save ourselves. We're powerless to transform ourselves. We need transformation. This leads me to my second point, the blessings of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. You get here, it's just like a breath of fresh air after being suffocated by Israel, wasn't it? All the sins of Israel, the the iniquity of Israel. And we come here and we see that everything that Jeremiah criticizes Israel for is going to be reversed in the new covenant. Everything that he goes after them for is going to be solved by God. 
And what God is promising here is that he is going to make a covenant. And it's not going to be like the covenant he makes with Israel at Sinai, but a covenant that is going to bring to reality all the hopes and promises that we've read so far. As we've been going through all the covenants of the Old Testament, we get to the end of them and we see how they're all fulfilled. And this is basically Jeremiah's way of, I'm going to bring all these blessings into reality. All of these things will happen when the Israelites, we see, are brought back into the land. The city of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. And then at some point, while they reside in this new community, a new covenant will come. Got a, do I have a slide, um, Samuel? Here we go. Here's all the blessings of the new covenant. The first blessing the way that the new covenant is not going to be like the old is that our hearts will be changed. The law of God will be written on our hearts. We will be transformed. And this didn't come out of nowhere. Moses said the same thing around 800 years beforehand that Israel will be rescued from the, after Israel is rescued from the exile, God will then circumcise their hearts. He says in Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That God would do the work necessary so that we would live. God would do the work, uh, transform us so that we will be the people that God intends us to be. That the stubborn hearts of Israel that were rebellious to the laws of God are going to be replaced with new hearts. No longer will they teach their neighbor to know the Lord. Why? Because unlike Israel, who did know God and acted wickedly, in the new covenant, the righteousness and knowledge of God is going to flow abundantly. This won't just be for the elite or the priest or the king, but from the least of them to the greatest of them. The peasant, the king, the slave, the free, all will partake in these wonderful blessings which flow to all. And these promises are just so much better than what we have seen so far, aren't they? I mean, how is this going to happen? Well, the prophet Ezekiel lets us know that this will be a work of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, just listen to this. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is this? Well, it's quite clearly and explicitly a heart change. It's like a heart transplant. God literally reaches inside you, pulls your stubborn, stone-like heart out of you and replaces it with a soft heart, a heart that is soft to him, that is fleshly in the sense that it's moldable. It's a heart that will walk in God's ways, that will obey his statutes and his laws. And what would this look like? How is this covenant going to be mediated to the people of God? Jeremiah says something amazing early on in his book. He says, remember that old regime, that old establishment of king, prophet, priest? Well, there's going to be a newer regime coming, a new kind of shepherd. Have a listen to Jeremiah 3, 15 to 17. He says, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Listen to what will happen then. Jerusalem will gather all the nations, the Ark of the Covenant, that, that great uh, central part of the Mosaic Covenant, you won't even remember it anymore. 
It's unnecessary. It's going to be abolished. It's going to pass away under the weight of this new thing God is doing when he gives us a new heart. And how will he do it? Through a new kind of shepherd who will feed them with knowledge, the knowledge of God and transform their hearts. And these, this word here, shepherd, is picked up multiple times in the New Testament to mean what? Pastors, men who would feed God's people with knowledge and understanding through the proclamation of a great word. And through this, hearts will be changed. His law written on hearts. Communities will begin to be transformed, multiply and flourish. And what does that mean? That these new shepherds would preach a message that would cause people to come to know the Lord. That this knowledge would come through the ministry of these men. And how gloriously was that fulfilled through the apostles? Teaching the message of the gospel by which all of us who belong to Jesus have come to know him. And that ministry passed down to the church until now. How amazing the words of Jeremiah here. We also see number three, a return of King David's line. Jeremiah 23 gives us this promise. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, sh- he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, this king would save Israel. He would rescue his people from their sins. He would rescue them from their enemies and rule over them with righteousness and justice. And he would be to them their righteousness. And the last blessing, as Jeremiah says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God would forgive the sins of these people. Their iniquity completely atoned for. Their sins remembered no more. All these blessings would be available to the house of Israel and Judah when God does this wonderful work of salvation in Jerusalem. And what's even more amazing is that the nations would get to be included into this wonderful work. That's why the nations flood to Jerusalem. And we always have to remember that Israel was not replaced by the church. We as Gentiles were grafted in to Israel. And that community of God's people is known as the church. It's a mixed community of Jew and Gentile. And we are so grateful that we are one of those nations, right, who have come to this new Jerusalem. So who gets to participate in this? This is my third point, the membership of the new covenant. Now, the topic of membership in the new covenant is a topic that is hotly debated amongst Protestants. And I'm about to enter into the heat. So please pray for me. It's something that I know many, in this, many people in this church have differing views on. And as you know, my beliefs on the New Covenant membership have changed. And I have um, gave the paper to all you guys, and it was long, and some of you guys read it, and I commend those that did read it. Uh, and I want to argue from the text what we've seen through all the covenants that we've been looking at, that we've explored over the last 10 weeks, and is this. That when the New Covenant is made, it is not only going to be made with individuals who have faith, but also with our households. Now, you guys remember this, you might remember this slide from last week, how we've seen how God makes his covenant with different parties and he makes them with individuals and their descendants. And I want to argue that he makes the covenant with Christians and their descendants as well. Just like all the covenants beforehand, the Old Testament isn't, I don't believe, is expecting a change, but that God has always planned to work in generations. When I was looking into this ages ago, I was just shocked by how much children just show up everywhere in the Old, Co- Old Testament when it talks about the New Covenant promises. Even all the way back, you remember Deuteronomy 36, 
uh, uh, chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And if we have a covenant worldview, this makes sense. Why? Because God establishes his covenant not merely with individuals, but with households. Listen to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, 25 to 26. He says, They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. We see here that God still cares about that old Adamic promise of multiplying Israel. He still cares about the command to Adam in the Adamic covenant so long ago, be fruitful and multiply. He wants his church, his community to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth as they bring more and more of God's enemies and make them his friends. He wants these blessings to flow out to the world, not just by men and women converting, but through the children of these families keeping the covenant keeping God's word and keeping his covenant. And this flows not just to children, but grandchildren. Have a listen to Isaiah 59, 20 to 21. It says, And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, Jeremiah speaks it so beautifully in Jeremiah 32, he says, uh, verse 39 to 40. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read every passage in the Old, cover, uh, Old Testament that speaks about this reality, but I wanted to highlight some of the really explicit ones. As I was looking at all this, and I'm, I'm reading it, and I'm, I'm trying to unpack it, I'm just like, who are these children? Who are they? What's the nature of them? What, what, where do they belong? Where do they participate in this? Are they, are they saying that all the children will be saved because they're born in a covenant household? When we look around the world, we know that's just not the case. So many children we have seen walking away from the Lord. So what is going on here? Well, when we look at the way that God has made covenants before this, it starts to make sense. In all of the covenants preceding this, the offspring have to believe God in order to receive the blessings of the covenant. Israel had the covenant, but they didn't believe God and they didn't receive the blessings. They entered into the blessings of every covenant by faith. Faith is the key that unlocks all of the blessings of God. And the key stress that the New Testament puts on the covenant, everything all the blessings are received by faith. And God makes promises to our children born into Christian households, and he doesn't make the same promises to children of unbelievers. They don't have the same promises. Yes, if they have faith and believe in Jesus, of course they can be brought into his church. But the promises are not made to them in the same way that it's made to us. To our children, hopefully, they are given access to all the blessings of the covenant, a believing household, a family worship, a believing community, and all the normal means by which God brings people to saving faith. In Israel, infants were circumcised on the eighth day, male infants, I should say, and it signified their physical relationship with Abraham, but it signified the faith that they ought to have, the faith that Abraham had. By the time of Exodus, these children were eating the Passover, but they had to be circumcised first, but then they could eat the Passover with the whole family well before they could understand the meaning of it. They kept Sabbath along with the rest of the family. 
They were instructed to teach their children when they sat in their house or walked by the way both day and night. And with every passing year and moment, they were learning who they were. They were learning what it means to be God's children, what it means, what God required of them. Why? Because they weren't calling their children to become Israelites. They were telling them what it means to be an Israelite because that's who they were. They were God's people. These are the things that God uses to bring people to a knowledge of Him. These are the normal means that I don't believe have changed in the New Covenant. What we have access to in the New Covenant are greater promises, greater blessings that are such wonderful gifts for our children. If there was a change, if our children were no longer in the Covenant, I feel like we would see that far more explicitly in the New Testament, but I feel like when we we read, for instance, the book of Acts, and and we, we read about the history of the early church, there is still this profound belief that children are in the covenant. Uh, Have a listen to the Apostle Peter when he speaks. He has a covenantal worldview. In Acts 2, 38 to 39, uh, Peter, speaking to the crowd, says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see, the apostles are going out and they're preaching the gospel and people are coming to faith and lives are being transformed by this work of the Holy Spirit and lives and hearts are being changed. Uh, But we see that as these people are coming to faith, they introduce not only these individuals into the covenant, but households. We see five households throughout the book of Acts that are brought into the new covenant. And this is true, not just for covenant Israel, but it's true for Gentiles. We see Cornelius, the Philippian jailer. uh, Sorry, no, the Philippian jailer. I don't think his name was Cornelius. Sorry, anyway. uh, Acts 16.31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We don't see a change. We see this household nature of the covenant, this household reality of the covenant continue down into the new covenant. And such was the sway and influence of a covenant head like a father who could come to his family and say, listen to these shepherds, listen to this man, Paul. This is who we are now. We're a Christian family. This is what you need to believe, children. This is our new reality. Now, I used to believe when I read passages like Jeremiah 31 that membership in the new covenant was synonymous with salvation, that if you were one of the elect of God, you were chosen by God for salvation, that choosing, that regeneration was the moment you were brought into the new covenant that it was, a, it was a, a, a spiritual bringing into the new covenant that only happened at regeneration. Therefore, children aren't included in the covenant community until they underwent a heart change. And that's because I'd read language like, you know, Jeremiah 31, 34, that says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I used to believe that that meant that everyone in the new covenant was regenerate that everyone in the new covenant was transformed by the Holy Spirit. But I no longer believe that. Why? Well, firstly, I I believe that Jeremiah is contrasting covenant-breaking Israel, which we heard about at the start, with a future covenant-keeping Israel. And he uses the same phrase that he, he uses seven times throughout the book of Jeremiah, from the least of them to the greatest. And in each instance, we see Jeremiah speaking in hyperbole. For instance, in Jeremiah 6.13, it says, For from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And you see how that's so totalizing. Everyone deals falsely. 
everyone is greedy for unjust gain. But does that mean that Prophet Jeremiah is saying that absolutely every single person is that? It would seem contradictory because he talks about King Josiah as being the opposite of this, as knowing the Lord and acting righteously. We see prophets like Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Ezekiel all lived at the time that Jeremiah penned these words. Uh, Jeremiah 4.22 says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They don't know me. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. But does this mean that every single Israelite doesn't know God? That every single Israelite is, is unsaved? But why does Jeremiah use this language? He's speaking in hyperbole. By and large, Israel in the days of Jeremiah were faithless to the covenant. That was just the reality. The majority of them were faithless. But it didn't mean there wasn't a remnant, a faithful remnant that still followed God. But Jeremiah predicts a future time when the people will not be known for their faithlessness and false shepherds, but rather for their faithfulness. That they would be overflowing in the knowledge of God through the ministry of these shepherds after God's heart, who would minister the blessings of the new covenant and see multitudes come to faith, to be transformed by the Spirit of God and to be saved into righteousness. When the book of Hebrews picks up on Jeremiah 31 and quotes Jeremiah 31, this is the warning he gives afterwards. He quotes Jeremiah 30, 31, and then down in verse 26, he says, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See that? The knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of God that's overflowing everywhere. If they receive that knowledge, but keep sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a weighty warning, isn't it? You see that there are people here that I believe Hebrews 10 is telling us that are in the covenant. They profane the blood of the covenant, but they're not regenerate. It means that you can be in the new covenant, but not necessarily saved. Those who are saved will persevere to the end. But it doesn't mean just because you belong to a church community, that you belong to a covenant community, that of necessity, you're going to be saved in the end. How are we saved? Faith in Christ. If you truly belong to God, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, if the law of God is written in your heart and you are a new creation, you cannot fall away from grace. You cannot be snatched out of God's hands. So who are these people that profane the blood of the covenant? And I think that's why we need to understand the covenant because this has such huge ramifications for us in the church. What the writer of Hebrews, and I believe the book of Jeremiah is saying, is that the blessings of the new covenant are so wonderful the promises are so much better. The hopes are eternal. It is this wonderful thing to belong to Christ. But then there are those who say they believe in Him, who seem to believe in Him, who have a salvific, uh, don't have a salvific belief, but a dead faith, who are baptized as one of us, who come to the table and eat alongside us. But their hearts are still stubborn. These are those who could be born into the covenant like our children, or these are those who say they believe and we baptize them and introduce them into the new covenant. 
But even though all these blessings are at the fingertips, they only taste the blessing. They don't partake. They never eat them. They never receive it. The blessings never make their way into them. It's always external for these people. They only greet the blessings from afar, but they never give their lives to the Son of God. They pretend to follow Jesus, but love all manner of things. And these people walk away from Christ and they prove that they weren't among us, that the blessings of the new covenant didn't come down right into their very hearts. And they break the covenant and they bring upon themselves such greater judgment than was ever experienced by any of covenant-breaking Israel. And that is huge. To walk away from Christ is a huge deal. Your judgment will be far worse than Sodom and Gomorrah than Tyre and Sidon, and all the places that have received harsh judgments from God, to trample underfoot the Son of God, to profane His covenant, is huge. The new covenant requires us to have faith in the Son of God, and that's how you access the blessings. Just like the old covenant, to receive all the blessings of the land, you had to have faith in God. All the blessings, those internal blessings, are received through faith. And there are always those who say they believe, but are false brothers. And the Bible warns us of them all the time. There are goats among the sheep, tares among the wheat, bad fish among the good fish that get brought in, bad fruit among the good fruit or no fruit. And what's amazing is that these people exist in the church, even though at their very fingertips is life eternal. And yet they remain stubborn. It's a tragedy when a man or a woman is at the very precipice of salvation and just never jumps in, just never partakes in it, just... I'm, I'm going to greet this from afar and hope that by just being in this church, I'm going to get saved. But that's not how that works. You have to be transformed by the gospel. You have to receive all the blessings of the new covenant by faith or else you'll produce thorns and thistles. Have a listen to Hebrews 6, 7 to 8, how the writer of Hebrews describes it. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. See, this is what God intends. This is the normative approach. When all the blessings fall down upon us, all these great external blessings of the new covenant fall down upon us, the hope is that as the gospel is proclaimed, as we're baptized, as we eat the Lord's Supper, that we would be transformed by these external blessings as we believe and have faith in Christ. A crop is produced. It is blessed by God. But then there's another kind of person where the blessings fall down, the rain falls down on that field. It says, verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. If we are in the church covenantally, baptized, eating the Lord's Supper, hearing the gospel, coming to Bible studies, having Christian fellowship, having all these wonderful external blessings of the church, and we refuse to come to the Lord Jesus by faith. We're a field that bears thorns and thistles. We're like a branch connected to Christ that doesn't bear any fruit. And what's the end? Near to being cursed, covenantal language there, and being tossed into the fire. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do not be this person. Don't tick off a list and say externally, look at what I've done. Say externally, I've read my Bible. I take the Lord's Supper. I prayed. My parents are Christians. It doesn't matter what you add to that list. None of these things is what God wants. These are blessings that serve a purpose. Our faith is not external experiences. Our faith 
is not merely being in the covenant. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one who transforms us. He is our Lord, our shield, our stronghold. He is the one who saves us and we do not save ourselves. Of course, all those wonderful blessings I said, like, don't look at that list and throw it out. Still hear the gospel preached. Still come to the Lord's table. Still participate in baptisms. Still come and eat. Uh, uh, still come in and, and, and together we unpack the word of God and still participate in Christian fellowship. But we glory, not in the external blessings, but in the internal blessings of the Holy Spirit, the new birth, the resurrection of the dead, and life everlasting. These are gifted to us by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm just going to finish with this Hebrews 10, 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Resolve in your heart today to not be one of those who shrink back, but those who have faith. And by doing so, you will preserve your soul because Jesus is mighty to save. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would turn us into a community, a covenant community, that not merely possesses the external blessings of this covenant, but Lord, it has all the internal blessings, the new heart, life everlasting, the forgiveness of sins, the washing with the Holy Spirit. I pray that all these things would rest and settle on every soul that is here, that through their faith in Jesus, their real faith in Jesus, by coming to him and, and really, really joining themselves to him, that they would be transformed and made new as new creations, that you would use them powerfully for your gospel to advance your kingdom and to see this community grow. We love you, Lord. We love you for the wonderful things you have done among us. Continue to bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.